0: THE WHITE HOUSE BEGINS A PUSH TO GET INSURANCE COMPANIES TO BEEF UP COVERAGE OF MENTAL HEALTH SERVICES. DEMAND HAS JUMPED IN THE LAST FEW YEARS. IT'S WEDNESDAY, JULY 26TH. THIS IS WBUR'S MORNING EDITION. GOOD MORNING. I'M RUPA SHANOY. COMING UP, THE FEDERAL INVESTIGATION INTO HARVARD GIVING ADMISSIONS PREFERENCE TO THE CHILDREN OF ALUMNI.
1: Harvard's discriminatory practice of using legacy preferences overwhelmingly benefit white applicants and harm applicants of color.
0: Also this hour, Russia is facing international criticism for pulling out of a deal that lets Ukraine export food.
2: It demonstrates that Russia doesn't care one bit about people facing famine drought.
0: And concerns that the new social media site Threads isn't ready to handle misinformation about elections. In sports, Red Sox win, mostly sunny and hot today, near 90. It's 7.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Forecasters say dangerous heat conditions are spreading in the Central Plains. Heat advisories are up from Central Texas to Ohio heat indexes will be well into the triple digits. Battalion Chief Michael Hopkins is with the Kansas City, Missouri Fire Department. He warns that everyone is at risk of heat exhaustion.
4: It doesn't matter what kind of shape you're in. I mean, there are certain uh, people, like I said, the elderly and very young that are more susceptible, but the heat can get to anyone.
3: The city of Phoenix has now had 26 straight days of temperatures at 110 degrees or hotter. Yesterday, Phoenix hit 119 degrees. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is expected to appear in federal court in Delaware today. NPR's Windsor-Johnston reports the younger Biden struck a plea deal with the Justice Department last month after a lengthy investigation.
5: Hunter Biden is expected to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax crimes during today's court appearance. The hearing is also expected to address an agreement between federal prosecutors and Biden to avert prosecution on a felony charge of illegally possessing a firearm. Hunter Biden's plea deal with prosecutors has outraged House Republicans, who have criticized the agreement as a slap on the wrist. In the meantime, the chairman of three House committees have requested testimony from nearly a dozen officials at the DOJ. The department informed the House Judiciary Committee on Monday that U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who's been leading the federal investigation into Biden, will appear for a public hearing. Windsor Johnston, NPR News.
3: House Speaker Kevin McCarthy suggests he's moving closer to opening an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The speaker says there needs to be an investigation into alleged financial improprieties involving Biden and his son Hunter. Democrats say there is no evidence of this and McCarthy did not provide any. This fall, Ohio voters will consider a proposed constitutional amendment. It would enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. Ohio Public Radio's Joe Ingalls reports the measure has just qualified for the November ballot.
6: Ohio's proposed constitutional amendment is similar to the one that Michigan adopted last year. Kelly Copeland, with the coalition behind Ohio's measure, says they have nearly 500,000 valid signatures from voters who want guaranteed rights to abortion, not the six-week ban that's on hold now but could be reinstated. So that we never have to go back to where we were a year ago to But before voters here can cast ballots on the abortion amendment, they'll have to vote in August on a change that could make it harder to pass future constitutional amendments by requiring a 60% threshold instead of a simple majority. Early voting is underway now. For NPR News, I'm Joe Engels in Columbus, Ohio.
3: You're listening to NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Chanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell wants to expand access to benefits for descendants of black World War II veterans. Campbell is leading a group of attorneys general in pushing for an expansion of the 1944 GI Bill. After the war, many black veterans were denied education and loan benefits because of their race. The new law would allow surviving Spouses and direct descendants to take advantage of those benefits. Nearly 69,000 people have lost mass health insurance coverage over the last three months. A federal rule change went into effect in April requiring all members to prove their eligibility for the program. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports that many of those who lost coverage failed to provide enough information to keep their benefits.
7: While most of those who lost coverage were confirmed to be ineligible, nearly 15,000 were removed because they provided insufficient information or were unreachable. The Healy administration is spending millions on a campaign to educate MassHealth members about the insurance changes and urging them to take action so they don't lose coverage. Altogether, mass health enrollment has declined less than 1% since April. State officials expect many more people to drop off coverage in the coming months. Anyone who loses mass health benefits can sign up for other health plans. For
8: 90.9
0: WBUR, I'm Priyanka Thayal McCluskey. A student at Harvard has done a mini experiment on a for artificial intelligence. She wanted to see if professors could tell if a homework assignment had been done by a student or by ChatGPT. WBUR's Amy Sokolos spoke with her about the results.
9: The student is rising sophomore Maya Bodnick. She recruited eight Harvard professors to grade an essay written for their class. She didn't tell them whether they were written by her or by the AI tool ChatGPT. In fact, Bodnick says ChatGPT wrote all of them. She says professors gave the essays A's and B's and one C. Given that ChatGPT, nine months out, is already a college-level writer,
10: I think that homework is never gonna be the same again. Students are gonna use ChatGPT whether
9: it's allowed or not, and AI detectors just don't work. Professors can't tell. Bodnick says her experiment has prompted one of the professors to eliminate take-home essays in his class this fall. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow.
0: Gas-powered leaf blowers are no longer allowed in the summer in Marblehead. Town officials have banned the use of the lawn tool from Memorial Day through Labor Day. The Boston Globe reports anyone who breaks the law could be fined up to $200. Gas-powered leaf blowers are also banned in other communities like Newton, Somerville, and Brookline. It's seven oh six.
11: WBUR supporters include the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moon, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen.
0: The Red Sox beat Atlanta 7-1 to last night at a soggy Fenway Park. The teams will wrap up their two-game series tonight. Training camp opens for the New England Patriots today in Foxborough, and fans are invited. The gates open at 8 in just under an hour. Practice gets underway at 9.30. But if you go, remember to prepare for the heat. It'll be mostly sunny today with a high near 90. Partly cloudy overnight, temperatures will only fall to around 7. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and hot again. It'll be in the mid-90s, and we could get some afternoon storms. Sunny and 90s again on Friday. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your
5: next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue will help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
13: And I'm Leila Faldil. The Education Department launched a civil rights investigation into Harvard University's legacy admissions practices, which gives preferential treatment to relatives of alumni and donors. But that's under renewed scrutiny following the Supreme Court's recent ruling overturning the use of race-conscious admissions. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo has this report.
14: Legacy admissions give an advantage to college applicants who are children of alumni and donors. About 40 percent of private colleges use the practice to help decide which freshmen get a spot in their incoming class. Harvard's discriminatory
12: practice of using donor and legacy preferences in admissions
4: overwhelmingly benefit white applicants and harm applicants of color.
14: That's Oren Sellstrom, the litigation director from the Boston-based nonprofit Lawyers for Civil Rights. Earlier this month, the group filed a complaint with the Education Department claiming Harvard's practices violate the Civil Rights Act. Legacy admissions have been a hallmark of elite institutions since the 1920s, when it was started as a way to reserve spots for the children of wealthy white Protestants. These days, it serves a similar crowd. According to Harvard admissions data, about 15% of an average incoming class has a family connection to the school, and the vast majority of that group comes from wealthy backgrounds. Yesterday, Selstrom's organization announced that the education department had responded to their complaint by launching a formal investigation.
12: Simply put, Harvard is on the wrong side of history. Momentum is growing. As more and more colleges and
4: universities abandon these unfair preferences, those that cling to them will increasingly be seen as outliers.
14: Over the past few years, a growing number of colleges have dropped legacy preference in admissions, including the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus and Wesleyan University. Wesleyan President Michael Roth told NPR last week that the school had been considering dropping legacy for years, and the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling finally tipped the scales. It seemed to me
11: more important than ever to say that we're going to no longer provide some students with an unearned advantage.
14: About a quarter of the country's college students attend private colleges that are more likely to consider legacy in their admissions practices. Sequoia Carrillo. NPR News.
13: We reached out to Harvard for comment, but a representative did not respond in time for this story.
12: We did reach Ivory Tolson, who is National Director of Education, Innovation and Research for the NAACP, the Civil Rights Organization, which has called the practice of legacy admissions, quote, inherently racist. Mr. Tolson, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you, thank you for having me. Uh,
12: Millions of people uh, listen to this program, so surely there is somebody, maybe multiple people out there listening right now who is asking, why is it racist to send my kid to Harvard?
4: (laughs) It's not racist to send your kid to Harvard. Uh, But what we are saying is that in light of the Supreme Court decision, institutions have to look for creative ways in order to advance the type of diversity that they say is important. And when we look at the things that institutions do, Um, and we have our diversity no matter what pledge, one of the things that we observed is that legacy admissions uh, compromise the institution's ability to create that diverse environment. When you have slots that are available uh, to uh, students whose parents donate a lot of money or who graduated from the institutions, uh, that's that's overwhelmingly uh, white. And so um, that's why we're saying that uh, legacy admissions donor uh, donor's children, uh, that needs to be examined, scrutinized, and um, abolished.
12: Are you you essentially saying that now that the Supreme Court has done away with considering race as a factor in admissions, legacy also has to go? They effectively were a pairing?
4: Yeah, because uh, race-conscious admissions balance that out a bit. Um, Universities have their own arguments for uh, uh, having legacy admits um, but they were able to balance that by using a variety of different factors to achieve the type of diversity that they say is important. And so now that, that uh, now that race-conscious admissions has been outlawed by the Supreme Court, uh, then uh, you have to look at other ways in order to achieve that diversity. One of those things being uh, eliminating the legacy admissions
12: i'm curious if legacy admissions were to stay around for another 20 years if we'd have a different opinion of them because some schools i believe harvard is one of them have reached the point where the incoming student body tends to be majority minority more people of color than other kinds of people would the legacy issue maybe look different for us a generation from now
4: yeah well across the board um the 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 student body is becoming more and more diverse um, uh, Harvard is still has an underrepresentation of black and Hispanic students. Uh, and so they, they have a, a, a lot more Asian students than they had before. Uh, so legacy would look different, but it still would be a disadvantage, uh, to black, Hispanic and, and uh, indigenous students.
12: When we get down to it, is the real issue here money? Some people have more of it. Some people have a lot more of it. And whether they're legacy admissions or not, wealthy families, according to study after study after study after study, have lots of different advantages in preparing their kids for getting into the schools that they want.
4: No, because... um... Black, Hispanic, and indigenous students who, who uh, applied to Howard and who got in through race conscious admissions policies were very well qualified. Uh, they, they had the, the qualifications that it took to get into Harvard. Uh, but the problem is that Harvard receives thousands of more applicants than they can accommodate. So they have to be able to uh, make some strategic decisions on who they're going to accept when everybody is qualified.
12: Oh, I see what you're saying. You're uh, saying I, it's, not, it's, it's, yeah, it's not that the wealthy kids were best, best prepared. They were just best prepared to get the slot, in other words.
4: Yes, the, the wealthy kids are not better prepared than the, the, than the students of, of color. Uh, the, the real issue is institutional racism. Um, uh, it, it's people who have had access to things that others didn't have access to when it was illegal.
12: Ivory Tolson of the NAACP, thanks so much.
4: All right, thank you so much for having me.
13: Opponents of Israel's government's plans to overhaul the country's judicial system are weighing their next moves after a defeat in the nation's parliament on Monday. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition passed the first part of their program, stripping Israel's Supreme Court of its power to overturn certain government decisions and appointments. But where does the crisis leave Palestinians? To find out, we're joined by Hassan Jabarin. He's the director of Adala, the legal center for Arab minority rights in Israel. He joins us now from Haifa. Welcome to the program. Hi, Lina. What was your reaction to Monday's vote in the Knesset and how it impacts the courts specifically for Palestinians, both citizens and Palestinians who live in occupied territories?
15: This government is the most extremist racist government in Israel history. This government's main job description is to chase Palestinian rights in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Jerusalem, and Palestinian citizen of Israel. We are not surprised from those actions of this government. In the last 10 years, really, indeed, the Israeli Supreme Court dismissed many of the Palestinian cases. They support the expanding the settlements in West Bank. They support the continuation of the occupation, and they support limiting the rights of Palestinian citizens. So Palestinians, in fact, became the victim of the debate in the Israeli Jewish society regarding the status of the court. And they are the marginal group. They are not representative in decision making levels. Mm -hmm. So, of course, any limitation on the judicial review of the court will limit the rights of the Palestinians.
13: When you say that this government is one of the most racist in Israel's history, if you could describe specific policies that you believe show that.
15: Because the coalition agreement of the three parties include many principles and items to limit the Palestinian rights. For example, yesterday passed a new law And this law said every town that has 700 families inside Israel, this town will be allowed to decide who will live in this town and who won't live. So Israel is the only place in the world that Palestinian citizens, they are not allowed to buy and to purchase houses and to live in these towns.
13: Now one of the most far-right members of the government, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir, said after Monday's vote that it was just the beginning. What do you think that means? When you hear it's just the beginning, what do you think is next?
15: This uh, minister, his agenda is clear to limit the access of the citizens to the court and the Minister of Police who is responsible for the security of the Palestinian citizens in their villages, he himself is racist. He himself sees the Palestinian citizen as enemy of the state.
13: The protesters against the overhaul of the judiciary, the weakening of the judiciary in Israel, say there's an existential threat to democracy in the country. How do you view the state of democracy in Israel right now?
15: We don't see Israel as a democracy. In fact, many Israelis today, they don't see Israel as a democratic state. Even one of the major human rights Israeli organization issued a report that Israel is apartheid state. The two camps that they are struggling now, the protesters and the camp of the government, we can see that the protesters are struggling for Israel to be Israeli Zionist state and Israel government is for Israel to be Jewish religious settler state. So in this debate, there is no space for the Palestinian citizens because Palestinian citizens one state for all of its citizens. They struggle for a state without superiority over of, of one ethnic group over the others.
13: That's Hassan Jabarin, director of the Arab rights group
0: Adala. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Meta's new social network Threads now has millions of users, but it hasn't outlined plans yet for how it plans to handle election misinformation that has voting rights groups worried. It's
16: 7:20. Third places are the community you build outside of your home,
17: school, or workplace these are the places that can try to help rise up the folks that gathered there and provide really critical, sometimes life-saving sources of information for communities.
16: I'm Anthony Brooks. How third places strengthen community and how to rebuild those that were lost during the pandemic. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: There's a new big baby at Franklin Park Zoo. The zoo welcomed an endangered Masai giraffe earlier this month. The calf is six feet tall and weighs nearly 200 pounds. Zoo officials say he was walking an hour after he was born. Sunny today and a high near 90. Partly cloudy tonight and a low around 72. Tomorrow, partly sunny and a high near 94. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon, and those may bring gusty winds. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from USPS with Ground Advantage, the new two- to five-day package shipping service. Ground Advantage details are at usps.com slash advantage the United States Postal Service, delivering for America. From the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is
13: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. I arranged to meet
12: somebody in an alley last week. It was on a summer morning when the bricks were in shadow. And just as our producer Taylor Haney and I met at one end of the alley, Neta Shargi came through it from the other side. Hi, are you uh, Netta? I'm Netta. Oh, perfect timing, Nice hey. to meet you. Hey, I'm Taylor.
9: Hi, Taylor. Netta, nice hey, to meet, meet, you. meet
12: you. We were meeting to see a mural in Washington, D.C. that is now one year old. It's on a long brick wall, and it shows the faces of Americans detained overseas. Netta Shargi led this effort because her brother had long been imprisoned in Iran. He is still behind bars, and the giant black-and-white faces on the mural have been peeling off the bricks.
9: It's getting harder and harder to come by though because as you can see, it's not as pristine as it was when we put it up and faces are tearing and disappearing and crumbling off. So it's it's not as uh it's, it's not emotionally easy to come by here anymore.
12: Does the decay of the faces say something?
9: Absolutely. This was very intentional.
12: The artist, Isaac Campbell, designed the mural to slowly come apart.
9: It shows the passage of time. You can see the effect of time on their faces and it's, it's a reflection of the effect time is having on our lives and on their lives.
12: She pointed out a face of a man who is smiling, though one of his eyes has peeled away. He is Imad Shargi.
9: That's my brother.
12: Who is he and what's happening to him?
9: He was traveling with his wife Um, in Iran when he was detained by the authorities for no reason in April of 2018. And he has been there ever since. The State Department has designated him wrongfully detained, which means that they have determined that his wrongful detention was due to nothing but his American citizenship.
12: She presumes, as many families of detainees do, that her relative was taken as a bargaining chip to use in talks with the United States. We have followed Imad Sharkey's story from time to time on this program. He was released, but not allowed to leave Iran, then re-imprisoned, then tried, and remains in a cell in Tehran. Occasionally, he is allowed to call home.
9: In October, we were actually here at this very mural for an event. And this is where I got a phone call for him where he was quite panicked. And I could hear noises in the background. I couldn't understand what those noises were, but I came to find out quickly thereafter that there were riots where he was as well as a fire and that, you know, he was very nearly killed. We didn't know about his whereabouts for days. And I think that call that he placed was just to say, you know, this may be the last time I speak to you. A lot of things have happened at this mural, that call and those fires and riots. When we unveiled this, my father was here for the press conference standing under my brother's image and he fainted. We have had families come here when they have heard of their loved ones you know, being poorly treated or going through hunger strikes. We've had those who have come home, have come back to this mural to see what was done for them when they were not here. Um, This has become a sacred alley, I think, for our campaign and for our families. And we like to refer to it as Freedom Alley.
12: Next to Imad's face is that of Brittany Griner, the pro basketball player detained in Russia. A sticker beneath her face provides an update that the United States negotiated her return. Other stickers mark the release of other detainees in the past year.
9: This is Jose Pereira, member of the Sitco Six. He came back to visit this mural when he came home. He said he wanted to see his face before it completely disappeared. Father Namazi, who was wrongfully held in Iran, was released. His son, Siamak, is still being wrongfully detained there.
12: This is Siamak here. We see the face with the glasses, although the face is coming off the wall.
9: That is Siamak.
12: He's been there even longer than your brother, if I'm not mistaken.
9: He's been there since, um, I think, 2015.
12: U.S. officials have taken every opportunity to say they are working for the release of prisoners in Iran. Occasionally, someone is released, but for Siamak Namazi and Imad Sharghi matters have moved slowly, as have larger U.S. negotiations over a nuclear agreement. Netta Shargi has routinely lobbied the U.S. government, and even once attended a White House event where she handed a letter to President Biden.
9: I have no doubt that they can bring all of these individuals home.
12: Every once in a while over the last several years, there's been some story of movement, some suggestion that something is about to happen. And having talked to you and your family, I think of you and wonder what those moments are like for you. You
9: think you can get used to it, but you never do. You go from thinking that next week, next month, you will have your loved one sitting at home with you to finding out that no, nothing. It's a roller coaster. We all describe it as, as you know, a roller coaster where you get excited, you lose hope. You get excited, you lose hope. And it never gets easier. You don't get used to it.
12: You hear from Ahmad from time to time, right? I do. When's the last time?
9: I spoke to him a couple of days ago. We're fortunate that if the internet is working and if the, he's allowed to call, he's, he's able to call for a few minutes.
12: And what is his current situation inside the prison?
9: this, This is one of those questions that's always difficult to answer. Is my brother alive? Yes. Is he trying to keep his spirits high? Yes. But just, Steve, put yourself in his shoes. He is an innocent American citizen. I imagine he's wondering why he's there, why he's still there, and why no one is coming to get him. That takes a toll on your physical well-being, on your mental well-being.
12: Now, when we record an interview for NPR, we sometimes listen for the closing thought, the ending of the story. Sometimes you know it the very second it's said. That's the end. We stood a little longer in that alley with Netta Sharkey, looking at the decaying mural, and I was listening for the end. And then I realized, there is no end. Not yet. This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBWAR's Morning Edition. Germany's iconic forests have suffered from drought for years, and now they're being attacked by beetles. We look at why many blame climate change. It's 7.29.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Inuindonatic and InuWindow.com
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Israeli military reports a growing number of its reservists say they intend to stop serving to protest a new law restricting the oversight powers of the country's Supreme Court. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv.
19: Israel's army
10: chief of staff is trying to stop a wave of reservist soldiers who vowed to quit serving in protest of the law. Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, told U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin his priority is to ensure unity within Israel's military ranks in the face of security threats, and he said Israel's democracy would remain strong. President Biden had urged Israel not to pass the judicial overhaul without wide public consensus.
1: With inflation in the U.S. economy still high, the Federal Reserve is expected to announce another hike in interest rates today. Many economists believe the Fed will raise short-term rates by another quarter point. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith says Fed policymakers paused at their meeting last month.
20: The Fed's always trying to strike this balance. Economists call it a soft landing, uh, slowing the economy down just enough, but not too much. And For the last year, the Fed has taken really aggressive action. Interest rates are higher than they've been in more than 20 years. So a lot of people said the pause was to try to see how things are settling and and hopefully help us strike this balance, this soft landing.
0: This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The National NAACP Convention kicks off in Boston today. Thousands of people are gathering here from across the country. And as WBUR's Laney Ruxtell reports, locals are thinking about the lasting implications.
14: A lot of the conversation around the NAACP choosing Boston for its convention has centered around why here and why now. Sheena Collier is the founder of Boston While Black, a network of professionals and activists.
6: She says years of local organizing laid the groundwork for the convention. The formula is really not that the convention coming equals this change into a better city, but more so the daily work by orgs and movements that are here has changed the narrative around Boston to create a different place for that convention to come. Collier says she hopes the city
14: will continue to think about how to empower Black businesses and citizens going forward and that it won't just be a moment in time. For 90.9 WBUR,
0: I'm Lainey Ruxtell. State highway officials expect the Sumner Tunnel to reopen as planned on August 31st. The tunnel, which connects East Boston to downtown, is in the middle of an eight-week closure for a major reconstruction project. Officials say work is about one-third of the way done. For drivers using the Ted Williams Tunnel as a detour, it's 35 minutes from Boardman Street to 93. The Tobin Bridge is 45 minutes from Route 60 to the Leverett Connector. There are no delays on the blue line of the T, which is free. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering a bill to end religious exemptions from the state's mandate on children's vaccines. Certain vaccines are required for children to enter school, but religious exemptions can be given. A hearing on the matter today is expected to draw strong opposition from some groups. That includes the conservative Massachusetts Family Institute. It claims the plan limits religious freedom. In sports, the Red Sox topped Atlanta 7-1 last night at Fenway, the teams meet again tonight. Before the game, the Red Sox traded infielder Kike Hernandez to the Los Angeles Dodgers. He spent two and a half years here in Boston and set several team records during the 2021 playoffs. A high near 90 today under sunny skies. Tonight, some clouds move in and it only falls to the low 70s. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says it'll be even hotter tomorrow.
21: Temperatures tomorrow are going to be in the mid-90s. The heat index is going to be around 100, and we'll want to keep an eye to the sky. There's a threat for some late-day thunderstorms, and some of them could become severe. So monitor for warnings and be prepped to duck inside for shelter, should you need to.
0: The heat continues Friday and Saturday. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
13: And I'm Layla Faldin. Threads, the latest social media site created by Facebook parent Meta, is only a few weeks old, and it already has tens of millions of users. It may become a major source of election information, but the company has yet to outline a plan to curb disinformation on the site. As NPR's Dara Kerr reports, that's got some voting rights groups worried.
7: Two days after Thread's launched, the company got a letter from several voting rights groups.
22: What we're asking for here is a real plan, knowing that we're only a few months out from presidential primaries and that very soon the presidential election will be on our doorstep.
7: Andrea Haley is the CEO of Vote.org, one of the biggest get-out-the-vote organizations nationwide. Haley and other voting rights advocates fear that as the 2024 election cycle ramps up, disinformation about voter registration and polling places could go viral. That's because Threads doesn't yet have policies around combating these types of posts.
22: Inaction on this issue would be to allow information to proliferate. So anytime you have 100 million new users, it's a time to
21: think about how that platform could be affecting democracy.
7: Threads is Meta's offering as a Twitter alternative. Unlike Facebook, where people share with friends, Threads is all about text conversations with strangers. Within days of its launch, it became the fastest growing app in history, although recent data suggests activity on the platform is waning.
22: What we're wanting to know is how do they plan to allocate resources What are their rules and policies going to be at threads and how are they going to make sure that Americans are receiving accurate information about elections ahead of this presidential?
7: Meta has policies for Facebook and Instagram, but it hasn't published any for Threads. A spokesperson told NPR that Facebook's rules apply to Threads, so, for example, people can't post false claims about voter registration. Voting groups say Threads needs a standalone policy, otherwise it's unclear how rules will be implemented and enforced. Bond-Benton researches misinformation at Montclair State University, and he says this is critical especially given reports that Meta laid off staff from its teams that work on election disinformation.
23: Uh, There's been a real kind of like nation's little bit of branding to suggest that Threads is going to be a gentler, more honest, and more open space online. The proof in the pudding will be uh, do they adhere to that in the election.
7: The voting rights groups say they've yet to hear back from Meta on their letter. Dara Kerr, NPR News.
12: Did you know this Farm workers in this country are treated differently than other kinds of workers. In fact, in parts of this country, farm workers have been excluded from federal labor protections, such as the right to unionize and earn overtime. NPR's Jimena Bastillo has this profile of an activist who wants to change that.
8: As I prepared for a trip out to the Yakima Valley in Washington state, I kept hearing about one guy, Jose Martinez. He's 67. He's originally from Michoacan, Mexico, but came to the U.S. when he was
24: 14. I love the fields because you're free. The open air and everything. It's beautiful.
19: And I am proud to do it, to be a farm worker.
8: Why not? Not just any farm worker. He has been at the epicenter of monumental change in farm worker rights, knocking out win after win. I sat with him outside his home in Sunnyside, Washington. His journey started with a tractor accident that almost took his life. He got a lawyer, sued and received a settlement. That was his first experience advocating for himself in the workplace. He decided to leave the fields and went to work for a dairy, but found the conditions there to be terrible as well. The hours were crazy long and they had no breaks. And even something as simple as sitting in front of a fan led to a scolding.
24: What are you doing? I
8: was getting a little air.
24: I was told, that's not for you. That's for the cows. I don't care about you guys.
8: He'd heard workers in other industries didn't have it so bad. Even if you work over eight hours a day, you at least get paid time and a half. So he found some lawyers, again, and took his employer to court.
24: I kept fighting,
8: and my lawyer asked me if
19: I wanted to fight for overtime. I said yes.
8: The state Supreme Court ruled in his favor. That lawsuit led Washington's legislature to pass a bill giving overtime to all agriculture workers.
24: Wow, I felt such great emotion.
8: For most people, this would be a crowning achievement. But Jose got back to work. He eventually made his way to a mushroom producer. Ostrom Mushroom Farms. He was among the farm's first employees, helped to build the mushroom beds and the rooms that house them.
24: From there, I build it from there all the way, almost the whole thing.
8: And then the pandemic hit and Martinez was worried workers were vulnerable amid COVID outbreaks. He reached out to the United Farm Workers and began organizing a union. But then he saw something bad happening. Local workers, particularly women, being replaced by seasonal foreign workers that were often men. So with the union, Jose Martinez went to the top. The Washington State Attorney General, Bob Ferguson.
11: That takes an awful lot of courage, and there's a fair amount of personal risk in doing that.
8: Ostrom Mushroom Farms settled the case for $3.4 million. Now Martinez is working to get money into the hands of those who were fired. He is helping to organize community meetings like this one under a picnic shelter in Sunnyside, Washington, with local farm workers. (laughs) And Jose Martinez isn't resting. He has seen how easily hard-fought wins can be lost. Two years after the state passed an overtime law for farm workers, not many are seeing bigger paychecks. One unintended consequence, overtime costs farmers even more for labor. So they're hiring more workers to spread the work around. This cuts into the total earnings of people who worked 70 hours a week and now have to work less. Some of those workers aren't happy with Martinez.
24: Yeah, some people, they get mad. yeah. They me They on stop me in the, the street and ask me, why did you do this? Mm.
8: His convictions haven't wavered. He stands firm that if workers are on these long hours, they need to be paid. Advocates say that there's generally a lot of fear for farm workers around speaking up, often due to immigration concerns. After his many years in the U.S., Martinez gained legal status.
24: I've never been afraid. When I start something honestly, I am never afraid.
8: And now he takes his advocacy from Washington state to Washington, D.C., where he hopes to take his fight for farm workers across the country. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Sunnyside, Washington.
12: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on War's Morning Edition, the Federal Reserve is widely expected to raise interest rates today to their highest level in more than two decades. The hot weather continues today with clear skies and temperatures near 90. Tonight it grows a bit overcast and falls to the low 70s. Tomorrow it'll get to the mid-90s, and there's a chance of showers and maybe a thunderstorm in the afternoon. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bionova Scientific, GMP manufacturing services for biologics, BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure.
0: Single-family homes in Massachusetts have never been less affordable. That's according to the real estate data firm The Warren Group. Its analysis shows the median price for a home in the state reached a record high of $612,000 last month. Just three years ago, the monthly median price were below $500,000. The Warren Group blames low housing inventory for the increase. Amazon plans to lower its price for acquiring Bedford-based iRobot. The company initially announced it intended to buy the Roomba vacuum maker for $1.7 billion. But earlier this week, the companies has agreed to cut that price tag by 15%. The Boston Globe is telling customers that some of their personal data may be compromised. The newspaper emailed subscribers this morning. It blames one of its third-party vendors and says information like names, phone numbers, and email addresses may have been leaked. It's 744.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
13: And I'm Leila Falden. The dense green woodlands of Germany that gave rise to the Grimm's fairy tales are turning gray and dying. Forest still covers a third of the country, but 80 percent of all trees are sick. Weakened by years of drought, they now face another onslaught bark beetles. As Esme Nicholson reports, some blame commercial forestry, but others say it's climate change.
25: André Salomon wends his way through coniferous woodlands on a hillside in Germany's central Harz region. Salomon is a forester out looking for damage, and he doesn't have to search for long.
15: Here's her das sind die Einbohrlöcher.
25: He points to tiny holes in the bark of a spruce, the work of a beetle that has infested this entire region.
23: Um... Salomon
25: shrugs. He says that with most trees in dire need of rain, the bark beetles are only finishing off the job, but it hurts all the same.
23: I won't deny. I'm sad to see a tree die hundred years too soon.
25: His melancholy is shared by tourists in this popular hiking spot. Silke Rohrbacher says she and her husband have been coming here for years and now barely recognise the trails. We plan
10: our hikes using Google Maps, which still shows
13: photos of lush, green forests. But you can no longer find the footpaths, because the trees they led through have disappeared.
25: The changed landscape also comes as a shock to business owner Wolf Goetz. He says it affected him so much that he co-founded the Future Forest Initiative, which brings together tech startups and foresters to find solutions.
26: Five to seven years ago, everything was deep dark forest. The first time when I saw it with these grey trees with no leaves on it, it was a bit like a nuclear bomb was here.
25: He says it's not difficult to get people on board because forests mean so much to the Germans, from the paintings of Caspar David Friedrich to the fairy tales of Brothers Grimm. The forest is a place of fear mystification but at the same time it's a resource. Ulrike Zitzelsberger is professor of German literature at the University of Exeter. In fairy tales very often the antagonist is banned to the woods and then when they do
21: emerge they come resourcefully equipped to make their point.
25: Um, Andre Salomon says foresters like him are often cast as fairy tale bad guys, and that some blame the spruce monocultures of commercial forestry for the current situation. So he's experimenting with species from the US, like Douglas fir and red oak.
1: We don't have to go and see spruce trees, right, to see the misery that German forests are facing at the moment.
25: Professor Henrik Hartmann is head of the Julius Kuhn Institute for Forest Protection. He says the real issue is not industrial forestry, but climate change, which is affecting all species, even those considered indigenous.
1: If you look up, you will see lots of sky. Ten or twelve years ago, we thought that beach is actually our best option for climate change. And along with the trees, our hopes died. Then we thought, well, we still have lots of oak. And oak actually has a deep rooting system. Oak's going to be our future. Well, now, if you look up, that doesn't look very
25: much like
23: future, does it?
25: Hartmann says it's difficult to envisage the future of Germany's forests. And Salomon agrees.
23: I'm not going to put a
22: bet on what these woods will look like in 100 years. Maybe this will all be palm trees.
25: He quips that maybe Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs are from Hollywood after all. For NPR News, I'm Esmina Nicholson in Kvetlingburg.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at 8.15 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we hear from philanthropist Melinda French Gates about her efforts to put more women in positions of political power. It's
3: 7.49. Poet Terence Hayes continues to chew over the sonnet in his most recent collection.
26: So I'm very aware, and I say in my teaching to my students, about bending the rules so that we know that there was a rule to be broken. Otherwise, it's it's anarchy.
3: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We speak with the award-winning writer about his new collection, so to speak, on All Things Considered from NPR News.
27: Listen today starting at
0: 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. A federal judge has blocked new Biden administration policies that sharply limit who can apply for asylum. At least 34 people have died in Algerian wildfires as a heat wave sweeps across North Africa. And the U.S. Education Department is investigating whether Harvard University's legacy admissions policy is discriminatory. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
27: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. On view now.
0: More at PEM.org. Sunny and near 90 today. It grows partly overcast tonight, and they'll be in the low 70s. Tomorrow, even hotter, mid-90s, with a chance of afternoon showers and maybe a thunderstorm. It's 69 degrees in Boston. <laughs>
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steven Skeep.
13: And I'm Leila Fadel. Grain prices are rising again. As Russia ramps up attacks on Ukrainian silos and ports, Russia withdrew from a deal that allowed Ukraine to export its goods to world markets despite the war. The U.S. and Europe have been working on alternative routes, though the options are limited, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The head
19: of the U.S. Agency for International Development was in the Ukrainian port of Odessa last week when Russia withdrew from the grain deal and resumed attacks on the city. Samantha Power says the Russians have since hit areas where the U.S. had been investing in alternate routes.
3: Now to see Russian forces uh, targeting as well Danube uh, river ports and grain silos, uh, it's just chilling uh, in the extreme.
19: Power says Ukraine managed to boost exports along that river route from 55,000 metric tons of agricultural goods a month early last year to 2.2 million this past May. It's also made progress in rail and road exports, though shipping through the Black Sea is far cheaper and better for the Ukrainian farmers' bottom line. The USAID administrator warns that Russian attacks and the withdrawal from the grain deal are throwing all that in doubt.
3: This is a very intentional, not only use of food as a weapon of war, uh, weaponizing food, including food that is reaching uh, the poorest communities uh, internationally, but it is also appears to be part of an ongoing effort to decimate Ukraine's economy.
19: The United Nations and Turkey are still trying to revive the Black Sea Grain Initiative. The British ambassador to the United Nations called another Security Council meeting, accusing Russia of using missiles that were designed to destroy aircraft carriers to target grain supplies in Ukraine. Ambassador Barbara Woodward also says Russia may start targeting civilian ships in the Black Sea.
2: It demonstrates that for all its rhetoric, Russia doesn't care one bit about people across Africa, Asia, and Latin
19: America facing famine and drought. She's hoping that African leaders will deliver a strong message to President Vladimir Putin when they attend the Russia-Africa Summit in St. Petersburg Thursday and Friday. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
12: President Biden's administration is accusing health insurance companies of limiting Americans' access to mental health care existing laws as companies should provide the same access to that as to physical care. President Biden says it's not happening, and he's proposing new regulations to change that. We talked it over with Neera Tandon, who is the president's domestic policy advisor.
17: So in 2008, um, the Congress, in a bipartisan way, passed the Mental Health Parity Act, That law said that essentially insurance companies, the healthcare system had to treat mental healthcare like physical healthcare. So for example, you can't be charged $20 to go to a physician and $50 to go to a psychiatrist. However, there have been ways in which insurance companies have avoided the requirements of the law or perhaps evaded the requirements of the law by, for example, having so few mental health providers on their network that essentially it's impossible to access a therapist or psychiatrist or to have prior authorization requirements, which creates just a lot of friction. Mm-hmm. So they're just a series of ways in which it is hard to get access to mental health care, even when you're insured.
12: I certainly get the concept that an insurance company might just, you know, reject a few extra claims or make it a little more difficult, and that that could be a matter of millions and millions of dollars for them. But the lobbying organization for health insurers identifies a different problem, which does seem to be a real problem. There is a shortage of clinicians and behavioral health professionals. Isn't that the case?
17: It is absolutely the case that we need more mental health providers. Um, But when you have stories like, this story of a woman whose daughter needed care. She had psychological challenges that she needed specific care for. And she found a mental health provider who was giving her daughter the care she needed. That person wasn't on network. That mental health provider wanted to get on network and had really petitioned to enter the network of the woman's insurer and the insurance company rejected that effort.
12: You also hear about mental health providers who are more likely, I think, than other kinds of people who provide healthcare, to be single practitioners or in a very small firm where they don't have the administrative staff to deal directly with health insurance companies. And they will end up being out of network instead of in network. Is that the insurance company's responsibility to work with, with providers of that sort?
17: It's absolutely their responsibility to really develop a network of providers. Mental health is a huge challenge in the country. It is also the case that sometimes reimbursement levels can be different for therapy versus physical health care. And that is one of the reasons why if the reimbursement rate is very low, Sometimes people don't want to join that network.
12: Oh, they'll say it's not worth the paperwork. It's not worth the trouble because I'm hardly getting paid.
17: Exactly. But that is the essential problem, which is they should be reimbursed at the same level.
12: So you're weighing in with the proposed new rule here, and I'm thinking about the context. You have a U.S. Supreme Court that has twice recently deployed this major questions doctrine, as they call it, to sink big presidential initiatives that have a big political or economic impact. Is the economic impact here large enough that you may need to worry about that at some point?
17: I mean, I defer to uh, Department of Justice and White House Counsel I'd say this is very different. The major questions doctrine, as I understand it, is really about whether Congress, whether the executive branch is going beyond
12: the
17: question that the Congress has posed or has addressed in legislation. I will say very clearly that our rule is realizing the promise and impact of the Mental Health Parity Act.
12: White House Domestic Policy Advisor Neera Tandon spoke yesterday as President Biden announced new rules for mental health insurance. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm
13: Steve Inski. And I'm Leila Fodil.
0: Coming next Wednesday to WBUR City Space, the culture of comic books. We'll have a conversation about comics and graphic novels and meet some of the Boston-based artists behind them. Get information and tickets by visiting WBUR.org slash events. Near 90 and sunny today. It only dips to the low 70s tonight and some clouds will move in. Tomorrow, a heat advisory goes into effect for most of the area. It'll be in the mid-90s with a chance of afternoon showers and maybe a thunderstorm. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston And we're coming up on 8 o'clock
11: WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation Helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy KnightFoundation.org
28: I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Despite slowing inflation, the Federal Reserve is expected to hike interest rates today to the highest level in 22 years. It's Wednesday, July 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, a federal judge has blocked new Biden administration rules that dramatically limit who can apply for asylum. Also, the struggle to sort out how to pay farmers and cities to use less water from the Colorado River.
29: Do we need to conserve? Absolutely. We need to conserve, but we need to be paid for the conservation.
0: And this hour, the NAACP's annual convention returns to Boston today for the first time in decades, and one local leader says years of work by organizers paved the way.
6: The daily work by orgs and movements that are here has changed the narrative and, and started to change the conversation around Boston to create a different place for that convention to come.
0: Sunny and near 90 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from
3: NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. With inflation in the U.S. economy still high, the Federal Reserve is expected to resume raising interest rates when it wraps up its latest policy meeting today. As NPR's David Gura reports, many economists believe the Fed will announce another quarter-point hike in rates.
1: This would be the 11th interest rate increase since March of 2022. At their last meeting, policymakers paused. They decided not to hike interest rates, hoping to get a better sense of how much progress they'd made in their war on high inflation. Well, in June, it slowed to 3% on an annual basis. That's still above the Fed's target of 2%. But inflation has cooled dramatically over the last year. In June of 2022, it was 9.1%. Jerome Powell is scheduled to hold a news conference after the meeting ends. And Wall Street will listen for clues about what the Fed chair and his colleagues will do at the Fed's next meeting in September. David Gura, NPR News,
23: New York.
3: Dangerously hot weather persists across the country. It was 119 degrees yesterday in Phoenix, and the city will get similar heat today. Heat indexes will shoot well above 100 degrees in the central U.S. That heat will be felt from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Little Rock, Arkansas and farther. President Biden is proposing a rule that would force health insurance companies to improve coverage for mental health services. Patients often find they have to go out of the insurance network for coverage, and mental health services can be more expensive. NPR's Yuki Noguchi
30: says the rule would address shortcomings in existing law. It's trying to strengthen existing policies that are already in the books, and it wants to do so by closing loopholes that have left patients with too few options for mental health care covered by insurance. And, you know, historically, insurance didn't cover care like therapy the same way it did physical care, like surgery. And a landmark 2008 law tried to change that, but insurers found ways around it. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reporting. A Texas A&M professor
3: was placed on leave after she was accused of making critical comments about Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Member station KERA's Toluani Osabamuwa reports it's brought up some questions about the role of state politics in the university's operations.
8: Texas A&M investigated Joy Alonzo after she reportedly criticized Patrick and the state's response to the opioid crisis during a lecture at another school. Leyland Copeland is vice chancellor of marketing with the university system. He
7: defended the decision.
11: The University of Texas Medical Branch had issued a public statement
4: censoring her. And it would have been irresponsible for us not to have looked into it.
7: Alonzo returned to her job after an internal investigation. It's just the latest
8: controversy at the school. Last week, the university's president stepped down after the failed hiring of a black professor. For NPR News, I'm Toluani
0: Osibamawo
8: in Dallas.
0: This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The NAACP National Convention gets underway in Boston today. The country's oldest and largest civil rights organization was founded here. And WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports this is the first time the group is gathering here in more than 40 years. Thousands of
1: people are traveling to Boston for the NAACP's 114th annual convention. Boston Branch President Tanisha Sullivan says the local chapter has spent months planning for the event, which will showcase the city on a national stage. Sullivan says 90 percent of their contracts for things like food and transportation went to businesses owned by women or people of color.
21: These businesses have the opportunity to participate in conventions going forward. Not just the NAACP convention, but any convention that comes to Boston.
1: Vice President Kamala Harris will deliver the keynote address this weekend. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Withman.
0: The Massachusetts Senate is considering ways to reform the state's gun laws. Senate leaders say change is needed to address gun violence. They have not put a timeline on the plan. The move comes after House lawmakers backed down from a plan to advance its own 140-page gun reform bill this month. House leaders now say they may take up that plan in the fall. Personal care attendants who work with seniors and people with disabilities are asking for better wages and benefits. Nirvani Williams reports the attendance union is making its case directly to Governor Healy.
8: Janice Guzman has been working as a personal care attendant for 20 years, taking care of her mom who has dementia and Parkinson's disease. She says she wants to continue helping her mom, but her $18 an hour salary is not enough for her to live on.
22: We're asking for better wages. Um, 25, paid training, you know, and retirement.
8: Guzman and other organizers say Maura Healy promised to address the PCA worker shortage by supporting an increase in pay during her campaign. Guzman says Healy still hasn't kept her promise. The organizers say they're hoping for a better contract when they meet with state representatives at the negotiating table on August 1st. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams.
0: Sharon Durkin is headed to the Boston City Council. She won a special election yesterday for the vacant District 8 seat. That district includes the Fenway, the Back Bay, and Beacon Hill. Durkin beat Montez Haywood with about 70 percent of the vote. Both plan to run for the position again in this fall's election. It's 8.06.
11: WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression.
0: The Red Sox beat Atlanta 7-1 to last night at Fenway. The teams will finish their two-game series tonight. Fans are now allowed inside Gillette Stadium for the first day of Patriots training camp. Practice doesn't get underway until 9.30. The Pats' first game preseason game will be held August 10th. Their season opener is September 10th. Mostly sunny today with a high near 90, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will only fall to around 70. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and hot again. It'll be in the mid-90s, and we could get some afternoon storms. Sunny and 90s again on Friday. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter
10: in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at org
13: slash Beach This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin.
12: And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Taiwan is arming for the possibility of some future war with China. We'll hear about that in a moment. First, we have an update on interest rates which people will know about if they have credit card bills or they're considering buying a new house or a car. People know interest rates are far higher than they have been in years. Last month, the Fed did take a break from interest rate hikes, which made consumers and Wall Street very happy. But then today, the Fed is going to announce what it plans to do next. NPR Stacey Vanek-Smith will be at the Fed meeting today. Hey there, Stacey.
20: Happy Fed Day, Steve.
12: Oh, thank you, delighted uh, that you joined <laughs> us on this near holiday. What happens now?
20: Well, today, everyone's expecting the Fed will unpause. We're expecting to see it raise interest rates by a quarter percentage point.
12: Why end the pause?
20: So, the Fed is always trying to strike this balance. Uh, you know, raise interest rates just enough to slow the economy down to where inflation falls, but not so much that we end up in a recession. So, when interest rates rise, you know, it makes it more expensive for us to borrow money. We tend mm-hmm. to borrow less money, spend less, and that means companies sell less stuff. There's less demand, and that usually brings prices down. But of course, when companies make less money, they also don't expand and they often lay people off. All this can cause a recession. So the Fed's always trying to strike this balance. Economists call it a soft landing, uh, slowing the economy down just enough, but not too much. And for the last year, the Fed has taken really aggressive action. Interest rates are higher than they've been in more than 20 years. So a lot of people said the pause was to try to see how things are settling and, and hopefully help us strike this balance, this soft landing.
12: Well, I would have thought we would have just about landed at this point or maybe at least be at that moment where, you know, you're about to touch down and you can see the runway out, uh, out your window. <laughs> Inflation is down to three percent. Why raise interest rates again now?
20: Yes, inflation is down to 3 percent. That is not far off from the Fed's goal inflation rate of 2 percent. So why just not quit it with the rate hikes already? Give the economy a break. Uh, I put that question to economist Raghuram Rajan. He ran the Central Bank in India for years. Uh, He's a professor at the University of Chicago. And he told me he thought the Fed was wise to be cautious.
23: I think the message they wanted to send is things are moving in the right direction but we need time to see how much more we need to do rather than, you know, we're done. We were waiting to see how the economy reacts and deciding how much more medicine it needs.
20: Rajan says declaring victory over inflation too soon could destroy the progress we've made. Uh, If inflation gets momentum, what's often called an inflationary spiral, prices start to rise out of control, our savings starts being worth less and less. This happened in the U.S. in the 70s, and the Fed had to take really aggressive action. It was years of recession, years of high unemployment. And right now in the U.S., everything is moving in the right direction. And Rajan says the Fed probably does not want to risk taking its foot off the brakes too soon. So our hot pause summer is expected to come to an end.
12: Hot pause summer. That sounds like (laughs) a hit song. You know, going up it's the It's true.
20: Well, with the Fed, you've got to try to like bring a little excitement where you can.
12: <laughs> and Pierre Stacey Vanek-Smith, you always bring the excitement.
13: Thank you so oh, much.
20: Thank you, Steve.
13: A heads up, this next story that's about two and a half minutes long contains descriptions of violence. It takes place in Mexico where an international independent panel of experts has issued its final report into what happened to 43 Mexican college students who were abducted in 2014. As James Frederick reports from Mexico City, the panel isn't leaving because the notorious case is solved, but rather because government interference has made solving it impossible.
26: In Mexico, everyone remembers the date, September 26, 2014. Initial reports were fuzzy, and the first government explanation made no sense. A drug cartel allegedly mistook buses full of young male students from the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College for rivals and attacked them. With the help of a crooked mayor and the local police, they killed six and then kidnapped 43. They later murdered the rest, burned their bodies in a trash dump, and threw the remains in a river. That might still be the official story, but for the interdisciplinary group of independent experts, a panel assembled by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, to uncover what the Mexican government could not or would not. Issuing their final report on Tuesday, they concluded this was not a mystery, but rather a (laughs) cover-up.
0: Nos decir Investigator Ángela
26: Buitrago says me the Mexican government was closely tracking the events of the Ayotzinapa students that night. The that night. Army, army, Navy, police and surveillance agencies shared hundreds of calls and messages before, during and after the kidnapping. Soldiers and Mexican investigators lied in testimonies. The group says so much evidence has been destroyed that fully piecing the events together now is not
4: possible.
15: El desafío fue...
26: With the Mexican government impeding their work at every step, the investigation has been a monumental challenge, said investigator Carlos Beristain. As such, the independent panel's work has come to an end. It's unlikely we'll ever know exactly what happened, and more importantly, why these young men were disappeared. It's hard to overstate the shadow the 43 Ayotzinapa students still cast over Mexico almost a decade later. Their disappearance and their families agonizing endless search for justice has come to symbolize so much of what ails Mexico. Corruption at every turn, grieving families searching for answers, and violence in equal parts unthinkable and senseless. For NPR News, I'm James Frederick in Mexico City. China and its neighbors are in an arms race to deter war
12: or prepare for one. On Taiwan, private companies are pivoting to defense and making weapons. NPR's Emily Fang reports.
10: Plastic injection molding machines hum here at Huamei, a company in Taiwan city of Tainan. This is the technology that Huamei once used to make Buddhist temple decorations. Vice President Lin Shunfu explains.
22: This is a banner for supporting votive offerings. It was one of our first products.
10: Currently, Hua Mei makes eyewear, skiing goggles, sunglasses, and diving masks. But Mr. Lin has his eye on outfitting militaries. Today, he's testing Hua new line of eye protection for Marine or Navy use. We <laughs> Taiwan is looking for creative ways to boost its defense abilities in a short period of time. And it's loosening one strict procurement rules to allow private companies like his to develop dual-use technologies for its
22: military. <laughs> Every year, Taiwan spends billions of dollars to buy American defense equipment. It's almost like we're paying the U.S. protection money. But if U.S. companies could support local businesses, some of the benefit would return to Taiwan and ensure we help each other.
10: China's military has already conducted military exercises twice simulating a blockade of Taiwan. In a real conflict, a blockade would make it impossible for any weapons or reinforcements to be shipped in. So Taiwan's manufacturers are asking, why not make more defense equipment at
23: home?
31: Every country aims to be technologically self-reliant and should be building up its own supply chains. So when the need arises, we can quickly rise to meet our own national security needs.
10: That's Max Luo, the founder of Geosat. It's a Taiwanese company that once made drones used to spray pesticides on agricultural fields or even deliver packages. But given the growing threat from China, Geosat is pivoting to dual-use drones that can also be mounted with guns, drop bombs, or surveil enemy sites.
31: What the Ukraine war has taught Taiwan is that small and medium-sized drones can be used on mass and that commercially available drones can be rapidly modified for the battlefield as well.
10: The U.S. sells billions of dollars of weapons and defense systems like F-16 fighter jets to Taiwan every year. But those deliveries can be delayed if the U.S. has more urgent orders to fill.
31: Because of the war in Ukraine, we see everyone's weapons inventories were depleted too quickly. Bring Taiwan into your defense systems. Move some production lines to Taiwan.
10: With that thought in mind, 25 U.S. defense contractors visited Taiwan in May, meeting with government officials and local companies, looking for ways to make new systems together. But progress is slow. Contracts can take years to be approved, and U.S. export controls prevent many technologies and components from leaving the U.S. Mr. Luo, Geosat's founder, says Taiwan is working to address any security vulnerabilities, and it is best placed to create what he calls red-free or China-free supply
23: chains.
31: We had a short time period to substitute out every Chinese-made part in our supply chain. We did it mostly by sourcing from the European Union. Of course, this also tripled our
10: costs. And Taiwanese companies argue making arms and defense equipment is a natural step. The island's economy boomed in the 1970s as it became a manufacturing hotspot for cheap plastic and electric components. Now it's the world's foremost semiconductor manufacturing base. In the future, Taiwanese companies say, let us make weapons.
14: We won't give you bad
26: quality products. This is something every Taiwan production line and Taiwanese worker believes in.
10: This is Lai Shen, the founder of Shenyong, a company in the northern Taiwanese city of Yilan. It makes all sorts of high-end glass and optical components. Right now, they're one of the world's biggest makers of endoscopy and colonoscopy camera lenses. Now, the company is pivoting as well. It's making gun scopes and specialty lenses that go into Taiwan's anti-aircraft rocket launchers.
26: I discovered defense and military products are a very good market.
10: Making parts for shoulder-launched missiles is very different from what his company, Sheng started out making. But Mr. Lai knows Taiwan needs to keep up with changing times. And even the remotest possibility of conflict with China means Taiwan needs to be prepared, and prepared to go it alone if necessary. I'm Molly Fang, and Peer News, Tainan, Taiwan.
12: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Chinoy. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, the squabbles have begun over how to implement the details of a landmark deal made this spring to share and conserve water from the Colorado River, beginning with who gets paid to use less water. It's 819. Third places are
16: the community you build outside of your home, school, or workplace.
0: These are the places that can
17: try to help rise up the folks that gathered there and provide really critical, sometimes life-saving sources of information for communities.
16: I'm Anthony Brooks. How third places strengthen community and how to rebuild those that were lost during the pandemic. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: Our first heat wave in nearly a year could begin today as some of the hottest weather of the summer moves in. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce is here to tell us all about it. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. So let's start with today. What should we expect?
21: So temperatures today are going to come close to 90 degrees. I'm forecasting a high of 90, but it's a little bit questionable as to whether or not we'll actually make it there. Uh, The humidity today, Rupa, is not going to be all that oppressive. I mean, yes, it's going to be a little bit humid, but there shouldn't be a huge issue in terms of heat index values. Uh, Those will be in the low 90s today. And today is actually storm free, which is a welcome change compared to some of the weather we've had lately.
0: And then tomorrow, the National Weather Service has a heat advisory going into effect. How bad? will it get?
21: So temperatures are going to be in the mid 90s. I'm forecasting a high of 94 for Boston both days. And the biggest difference is the humidity does go up. So when you factor that in, the heat index value is going to be close to 100 degrees for tomorrow and Friday. And that's when it starts to impact the body. And you have to kind of keep that in mind, particularly if you are going to be outdoors the next couple of days.
0: Okay, when do we finally get some relief? Well, actually, I think Saturday
21: we have a shot of hitting 90, 91. Actually, earlier in the day, there's going to be a front coming in. So there'll be some thunderstorms and that will break the heat, but not until later on Saturday. So if we hit 90 today and again on Saturday, this will go down as a four-day heat wave and then relief will come in on Sunday. So it'll be a noticeable change, much drier air too. So that the second half of the weekend turns much more comfortable with a high around 80, which is a big difference.
0: You mentioned the humidity compared to a lot of other places. We haven't had a lot of extreme heat here this summer, but it has been very humid. Is that something that could be increasing because of climate change? Um,
21: it, it could be for sure. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the stories across the country of the extreme heat and across really the globe. Um, last summer, we had two heat waves that were pretty long ones, six and seven days, respectively, in uh, July and August. We haven't had that this year. Um, we've only hit 90 degrees twice in the city, but this is obviously going to be an extended stretch. And I think we had the longest stretch of dew point values. That's the measure of the amount of moisture in the atmosphere linked to humidity. We had the highest stretch of that um, going back through the month of July for the city of Boston.
0: WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce will hear more from you throughout the rest of this week as we deal with this heat. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks, Rupa. It's 71 degrees in Boston.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, mattress firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs learn more at mattressfirm.com from the wallace foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org from the lodestar foundation inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
12: It's
22: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
18: I'm Leila Faldin and I'm
22: Michelle Martin. Women are just over half the population in the U.S., but only one out of three of the people serving in a state legislature. And about one out of five people in the U.S. is a mother with kids under 18, but only 5% of state legislators are. Melinda French Gates, founder of Pivotal Ventures and co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, thinks that's bad for democracy
28: and needs to change. When our government looks like we look like as a populace, they represent us and they make then laws and policies that affect and that we all believe in. And we're just not there yet.
22: And she says she's ready to put some of her considerable resources in play to make that change. She wrote about this recently for Time. I do want to mention that the Gates Foundation is an NPR sponsor. Women have had the vote in
28: the U.S. since 1920. Why is it still so hard for women to get elected? There are barriers to women running for office. And I think we need to stop sending women to a broken system and we need to change the system. And so things like caregiving are a barrier for women. And yet, if women have to travel say to Albany in New York to the state house, they have to have some place to put their child. And so some organizations now are starting to break down that system. There are now 26 states where women can use campaign finance funds to actually help pay for caregiving. And that makes an enormous difference.
22: You say in your piece, you're going to step up your
28: investments in system wide efforts. What exactly are you prepared to do? Well, I'm putting in a lot of money to support partners who are out there doing great work women we know now from good research govern differently more collaboratively and that's why i think we need to support organizations who are help getting women and people of color into our congressional halls
22: what, what are you planning to do that's different from what other groups are already doing to elect women i mean emily's list raises money for pro-choice democratic women uh, at all levels of government on the gop side there's view pack There's Maggie's List, there's Susan B. Anthony,
28: Pro-Life America. So do you have a focus that's different from theirs? I'm trying to look at the whole chain for women and make sure they run, they get elected, and wow, then they govern effectively from day one. My focus is making sure, number one, we have the right research so we know how to support women. So I do that through the Center for American Women in Politics. But then I also am specifically focused on organizations who are looking not just for women, but women of color. So Higher Heights is one of those. Latinas Represent is another one. And then I'm looking for organizations that not just help raise campaign funds for women, but teach women. So women will tell you, for instance, when they are on the campaign trail, it's both hard to raise funds, but they're harassed at a huge rate. And they feel like once they get into office, it's not easy because it's still a lot of quite frankly, men, to network in so they can start to govern effectively from the moment they start. I got the impression from your piece that you want to make a particular focus on state legislatures. Is that accurate and why is that? I'm doing both, but state legislatures I think one of the things we don't look at is there are 7,000 seats and state legislatures control $2 trillion in spending. So they make policy in your state that really affects you. And quite often they will sometimes lead in a way that the federal level won't. It's also a great training ground for women who want to go on to higher office. So what I'm doing with my company, Pivotal Ventures, is I'm funding the whole ecosystem across both sides of the aisle. That's why I'm not. Funding just one on the Democratic side or one on the Republican side. Then, on my personal giving side, of course, the representatives that I fund or the candidates I fund are ones that represent my values. So, you um, have an MBA and you're a former
22: software engineer. So, your number is oriented. What's going to be your metric of success?
28: Parity. Hmm, parity. When we have women at 50% of state legislatures and 50% at the federal level, we will have succeeded. And we should not stop before we get there. Of the women and men in state legislatures and at the national level, they should look like us. We shouldn't have 16 million Black women in this country and zero Black female senators at the national level. That is inexcusable.
22: That's Melinda French Gates, founder of Pivotal Ventures and co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Ms. French Gates, thanks so much for talking to us once again. And, you know, we'll keep in touch and let's um, see about these benchmarks, see how it works out.
28: Great. Good to speak with you.
0: This
22: is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. One local leader reflects on how years of organizing helped Boston become a place the NAACP's annual convention would want to return to. It begins today in the seaport. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live today wherever you go. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is expected to appear in a federal courtroom in Delaware today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports.
5: Hunter Biden is expected to plead guilty to misdemeanor tax crimes during his court appearance today. The hearing is also expected to address a pretrial agreement that he made with federal prosecutors on a felony gun charge. Hunter Biden's plea deal has drawn sharp criticism from congressional Republicans who say that he got off too easily.
1: Hunter Biden is not expected to serve time in jail. The State Department says former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed was injured while fighting in Ukraine and is receiving medical care in Germany. The extent of his injuries is unclear. Reed was released from a Russian prison last year in a prisoner exchange between the Biden administration and Moscow. The deal included the release of a Russian pilot who was serving a 20-year federal sentence for conspiring to smuggle cocaine into the U.S. Vadant Patel is a State Department spokesman.
22: Since the beginning of this war, uh, we have warned that U.S. citizens who travel to Ukraine, especially with the purpose of participating in fighting there, uh, that they face significant risks.
1: This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. State transportation officials say work on the Sumner Tunnel is on schedule. This is the fourth week of an eight-week-long shutdown of the tunnel that connects East Boston and downtown. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez brings us this progress report. About a half mile into the tunnel, crews are
7: installing and securing pre-made concrete arches to reinforce the ceiling. MassDOT's District 6 Highway Director John McInerney says more than 700 arches will be installed by the time the work is complete.
1: They've been working on both sides of the tunnel, so we'll talk the East Boston side, the North End side, so they're coming from the middle, they've been going out in two different directions.
7: McInerney says the project is about 30 percent complete, and he believes the tunnel will reopen, as scheduled, on August 31st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez.
0: For commuters trying to get around the closure, there are no delays on the blue line of the T, and it's free. The Ted Williams Tunnel is a 35-minute drive from Boardman Street in East Boston to 93. The Tobin Bridge is 40 minutes from the Revere Beach Parkway to the Leverett Connector. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants to know more about the salary of the Federal Reserve's inspector general. She's worried the role is not independent enough. Warren says the salary of that job is partly based on how other Fed employees perform. She says that could push the inspector to overlook wrongdoing. Warren has been pushing for tighter banking regulations since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank earlier this year. New Bedford is the latest community in the state to ban miniature bottles of alcohol. The city's licensing board voted this week to enact the ban starting on November 1st. However, that might be delayed by city councilors who say the ban would hurt liquor store owners. Other communities that have banned the miniature bottles include Chelsea, Newton, and Falmouth. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at seven.com. The Red Sox topped Atlanta 7-1 to last night at Fenway Park. The teams will meet again tonight. Team USA will play the Netherlands tonight at the Women's World Cup. It's a rematch of the 2019 final, which the U.S. won. A high near 90 today under sunny skies. Tonight, some clouds move in and it only falls to the low 70s. Tomorrow, even hotter with highs in the mid 90s. There's a chance of afternoon showers and a storm. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes
18: from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses and communities through tailored wealth management, banking and capital market solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. From Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview and hire candidates all in one place. More at indeed.com/npr. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station it's Morning Edition from
13: NPR News. I'm Leila Falden.
12: And I'm Steve Inskeep. If you break your arm, you go to the doctor. And if you have insurance, they would usually pay. Many people report a much harder experience when they seek mental health care.
13: It's hard to find treatment in network and hard to get insurance to pay. President Biden yesterday said health insurance companies are not fully following the law. He's proposing new regulations that would push companies to try harder
16: and pay up. You get referrals to see mental health specialists. But when you make the appointment, they say, I can't see you until your doctor submits the paperwork and gets special permission from the insurance company.
12: Give me a break. NPR's Yuki Noguchi was listening to the announcement yesterday and is on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What's the White House trying to do?
30: It's trying to strengthen existing policies that are already in the books, and it wants to do so by closing loopholes that have left patients with too few options for mental health care covered by insurance. And, you know, historically, insurance didn't cover care like therapy the same way it did physical care like surgery. And a landmark 2008 law tried to change that, but insurers found ways around it. For example, it might appear as though an insurer has a network of mental health professionals, but in fact, many of them might not be taking new patients or are no longer practicing or are too far away, or sometimes insurers would require paperwork to authorize treatment repeatedly in order to keep getting treatment. So some families told me the reauthorization could be almost daily.
12: Okay, so the principle here, the law is you're supposed to have equal access to mental health care, equal to what you would get for your physical health. Yeah. What are people doing when instead they find these barriers?
30: Well, you know, it's it's a really crisis situation in a lot of cases. And if you don't have insurance, it's a huge cost, right? Paying out of pocket for something like inpatient treatment can easily cost $100,000 or more. So even families with resources often end up tapping every source of cash and credit they can. Like this Michigan woman, Rachel, who last year described the situation paying for her son's treatment.
5: All of our savings is gone. How How are we going to send our kids to school? How are we going to... Like, what are we going to do when it's time for it? Like, how are we going to recover from this? I don't know. Those thoughts in your mind, like there's no space for that when you are just trying to keep your child alive.
30: You know, and Steve, out of desperation, some families even impoverish themselves to qualify for public insurance like Medicaid and some forego care and let conditions worsen into a bigger crisis or end up in the ER. But all
12: of this is happening under an existing 15-year-old law, as you mentioned, that I know has also been updated more recently. So what does the White House propose to do about that?
30: Well, it's trying to address the fact that there's not a lot of good data or even clear definitions to track how these policies affect patients. So it really hasn't been possible to hold insurers accountable. And the White House also wants better reimbursement for the doctors and therapists who provide this care. And the hope there is that maybe that will draw more people into the profession.
12: Oh, that's what I would have assumed was part of the problem is just not enough mental health care providers to go around.
30: Yeah, absolutely. Right. At a time when mental health crises are really on the rise, Um, you know, there aren't enough professionals to take care of them. And that's something that's going to take a lot of time to solve. And even the president acknowledged that, you know, while with these policies, he wants to address insurance problems, there are still lots of problems with access to care generally.
12: NPR Consumer Health Correspondent Yuki Noguchi, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. And since we've raised mental health, let's mention this. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text 988, three numbers, 988 for the National Crisis Lifeline.
13: The White House announced a historic deal earlier this year to help keep America's two biggest reservoirs from drying up. It's paying cities, farmers, and other water users a lot of money to take less water from the Colorado River. But in the place that uses more water than any other, there's deep skepticism about whether the plan will work long-term. KUNC's Alex Hager reports.
32: Farmer John Hawk steps out of his white pickup truck and pulls on a ball cap to keep the baking summer sun out of his eyes. He's looking out over neatly divided squares of green while a tractor works the dirt nearby. It's a business, it's an industry that is You know, in my case,
29: four generations going on five.
32: We're in California's Imperial Valley, which produces about $3 billion each year in crops and livestock. And the valley uses more water than any other farm district or city along the shrinking Colorado River. Climate change is putting less water in, but people have not done enough to take less water out. When states and the feds look for ways to cut back, this is an obvious place.
29: Do we need to conserve? Absolutely. We need to conserve, but we
32: need to be paid for the conservation. Water law in the West says that people who started using it first will be the last to face cutbacks in times of shortage. It's a system that mostly excludes Native Americans who were here before anybody else. But it leaves imperial farmers with some of the most legally untouchable water rights in the West. So farmers like Hawk say the Valley's legal rights mean other places should be on the hook to conserve water first.
29: Don't crowd to the front of the line. It doesn't work. And you'll get a fight out of me. I'll grab you by the neck and say, listen, pal, you pay your dues just like our forefathers did.
32: But if you do it fairly, Hawk says the rest is relatively simple. Want farmers to adopt new technologies that use less water? Pull out your wallet.
29: We could use drip or use sprinklers, but you got to remember that the cost goes way up in a crop. And so how are we compensated for doing that?
32: In May, the federal government said it would pay farmers to use less water. That could look like methods farmer Alex Jack is already using. Jack is walking into a field of alfalfa hay watered through drip irrigation, which waters the notoriously thirsty crop more efficiently.
33: It's like farming with an eyedropper. It's just uh, incredible preciseness for each plant.
32: But it takes gear that isn't cheap.
33: If you go back and get your grandma's car that had a big V8 in it and everything else, not very good gas mileage, it was big, made out of steel, very heavy, clunky, nowadays you look at that car and think, oh my god. Well, unfortunately, a lot of farmers are still driving their grandma's cars, so to
32: speak, when it comes to irrigation. It's not clear yet exactly how much money is in the three-year federal deal, but it could bring hundreds of millions of dollars to help upgrade equipment. Tina Shields works for the Imperial Irrigation District, which represents the farmers and decides how the money gets spent. She says even a big check would not solve the problem overnight.
9: You can't make everybody happy. I mean, if you have 10 farmers, you have 10 different opinions on what the best program is because they're going to advocate for what works for their business model.
32: Three years from now, the agreement to pay farmers to use less water will run out and the Imperial Valley will still have the same water rights it does now. Those rights will give them a lot of leverage in negotiations over how to share the Colorado River going forward. Those negotiations will likely only get more difficult as climate change shrinks a river that already can't supply everyone who wants to use it. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager in the Imperial Valley, California.
0: This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the value of caregiving for the elderly by family members who often go unpaid. The hot weather continues today with clear skies and temperatures near 90. Tonight it grows a bit overcast and falls to the low 70s. Tomorrow it'll get to the mid-90s and there's a chance of showers and maybe a thunderstorm in the afternoon. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Boston-based General Electric is outpacing Wall Street expectations. Bloomberg reports the manufacturer had higher than expected earnings in aerospace orders in its second quarter financial report. GE credits an air travel boom with driving demand for jet engines. Locus Robotics is breaking ground today on its new headquarters in Wilmington. The company makes robots that work in warehouses. It plans on eventually consolidating its 500-person workforce in five other locations at the new Wilmington facility next year. It's 843.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com and La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at LaCuchara.com.
0: This is WBW's morning edition. I'm Rupa Shenoy. More than 8,000 NAACP delegates are in Boston for the group's annual convention. It begins today at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center in the Seaport with the theme of Thriving Together. This in a city with an infamous history of racism and wide ongoing disparities. Sheena Collier is the founder of Boston While Black, a network of local professionals and activists. And she joins me now. Sheena, why is it such a big deal to have this convention here? And what role did local organizers play in bringing it here?
6: I think it's a big deal because of the national conversation that's always happening around Boston and whether we are or are not a welcoming place for people of color, particularly Black people. So having this decades-old civil rights organization choose again to come here after not being here for, I believe, over 30 years. For some, is a kind of a marker of has Boston moved forward? Have people decided this is a place that they want to be? And so really, the focus uh, should be on the work that has been done locally since the last convention was here in, in, in 1982, and particularly more recently, to create an environment where the convention coming here is even being celebrated.
0: Can you go into that a bit for us? What were the steps to making this happen?
6: Yeah, at the national level, folks like Mike Curry really championing Boston and saying, you know, please give us a look. This is definitely somewhere you should be. But the formula is really not that the convention coming equals this change into a better city, but more so the daily work by orgs and movements that are here has changed the narrative and and started to change the conversation around Boston to create a different place for that convention to come. So we've had more recently... Embrace Boston, um, which is highlighting the civil rights history. We have organizations like the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. Um, My organization, Boston While Black, we, this last Saturday, hosted 8,000 people, Black people across generations at the Lawn on D, you know, right at the convention center in a part of town, the Seaport, um, which is, you know, traditionally known as South Boston, a place where Black people haven't felt welcome historically. And so, There's these efforts that are happening every day, as well as the work that the NAACP has done locally to be able to prepare for this national convention to come here.
0: How should we gauge the extent to which this convention is benefiting Black businesses and the larger Black community?
6: So I know that there's some data. The city can do a lot to measure the economic impact. Of an event, they do it for all conventions that come here, and hopefully, they can do work to also aggregate it to to look at specifically Black-owned businesses. I do, though, want to caution us around putting everything on this convention. There's so much being done in Boston, and much more that needs to be done. And so, this is a moment for us to kind of put our energy towards something that is happening for a couple of days. But I think the real measure of the impact is. Is this a continued effort? Do we continue to have these conversations that are focused on how we move Boston forward for Black people?
0: So thinking beyond this convention, as someone who's been here and has watched hopefully Boston move forward and been working on racial justice, what do you think Boston should be thinking about right now to make this convention more than, you know, a blip or a symbol?
6: Yeah, a lot of the conversation around people of color, and particularly Black people in Boston, is typically framed through a lens of disparity, which is very true. However, I think that we miss by that hyper-focus. Black people, people of color, as business owners, as consumers, we are homeowners. There's vastness across the, the Black diaspora. My hope is that when you create things that speak to Black culture and community, that people are excited about and generated about that they come out and that they contribute to the economy, that that is now just become something that we can do locally as well. We don't have to wait for something national. How are we creating more in Boston that speaks um, and highlights and amplifies the Black experience so that Black people's contributions as people that contribute to the economic development of the region are recognized?
0: Sheena Collier is founder of the networking group Boston While Black, Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about this. Thank you, Rupa. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the massive wildfires burning in Greece, Italy, and Algeria and their connection to climate change, plus the link between screen time and a child's educational development. It's a 49.
27: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com and SunBug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit
3: SunBugSolar.com poet terence hayes continues to chew over the sonnet in his most recent collection
26: so i'm very aware and i say in my teaching to my students about bending the rules so that we know that there was a rule to be broken otherwise it's it's anarchy
3: i'm mary louise kelly we speak with the award-winning writer about his new collection so to speak on all things considered from npr news
0: listen today starting at four on 90.9 wbur Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates again today, bringing them to their highest levels in over two decades. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he may begin an impeachment inquiry into President Biden over unproven claims of financial misconduct. And the water temperature on the tip of Florida has been over 100 degrees for two days in a row, possibly setting a new record for hottest seawater ever recorded. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
11: WBUR supporters include the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at icaboston.org.
0: Sunny and near 90 today. It grows partly overcast tonight and will be in the low 70s. Tomorrow even hotter, mid-90s, with a chance of afternoon showers and maybe a thunderstorm. It's 73 degrees in Boston.
33: A lot of people helping you later in life do it
27: for no money. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the new Glassdoor app. Professionals can now join real, anonymous conversations within their company, industry, and communities and get answers about careers on Glassdoor. And by Indeed, a hiring solution that helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com hire.
33: I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, there's now a tentative deal between the Teamsters Union and United Parcel, The next phase begins in earnest on Monday, going through the nitty-gritty with 340,000 union members. Union leadership see the deal as a defining moment for the wider labor movement. Business groups, which had been worrying about what a UPS strike would do to supply chains, are are expressing relief. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more.
23: The talks between UPS and the Teamsters had stalled for three weeks and resumed yesterday. At stake, a strike that could have cost the economy billions of dollars. Retailers were worried about the impact on the important back-to-school shopping season going on right now. And UPS could have lost business to rivals. All of this put pressure on the company, and the Teamsters said they won $30 billion in new money for workers. Arthur Wheaton is the director of labor studies at Cornell.
16: They absolutely needed the threat of a strike to force UPS back to the bargaining table.
23: Wheaton says the deal, which apparently raises pay as much as 48 percent for part-time workers, will likely set a precedent.
16: So seeing that the big company making huge profits had to pay more towards wages, that can help elevate other companies to say, yeah, well, that's just the trend we're in. That's where we're at. We will have to do the same.
23: Unionized UPS workers will have until August 22 to vote on the deal. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace.
33: The advertising slump at Google Alphabet has come to an end. Ad sales were up 3% more than expected in the April through June quarter. This is partly the recession that never came, but also a sign of Google's enduring strength, despite artificial intelligence-powered competition breathing at the door. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has that.
8: Some of last year's biggest ad spenders were crypto companies. Remember them? Well, they're not spending quite so much these days. Neither are rapid delivery companies. NYU Stern professor Paul Hardart says you can thank higher interest rates for that.
1: The cost of money has gone up and that's sort of the intention of the Fed and that reverberates through the entire economy, including advertising.
8: Big ad agencies are seeing less spending from tech and telecom companies, but pharmaceutical firms, car makers, and food and beverage companies are picking up some of the slack by spending more with those ad agencies. Meanwhile, Hardart says tech titans like Meta and Alphabet, which are also major players in the ad business, are serving up two things every advertiser wants, better targeting and large audiences. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace.
33: Google stock is up 6% pre-market now. S&P futures are down a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down two-tenths of a percent in about five hours. We're expecting news from the central bank setting interest rates to a 22-year high. Marketplace Morning Report is
27: supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by C3AI, C3 Generative AI provides ChatGPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI, this is enterprise AI. And by Palo Alto Networks, Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at PaloAltoNetworks.com.
33: Now to unpaid people helping us when we're older. M.T. Connolly is an elder rights advocate, a lawyer, and a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. Her book out this week is called The Measure of Our Age, Navigating Safety, Money, and Meaning Later in Life. Welcome back to the program. Great to be back. Thanks. You know what supports a lot of us in older age? is what you call the shadow care industry. These are people who are not getting paid, but are spending a lot of hours helping us.
2: That's right, and one of the things that's happening is that as we live longer, a lot more of us are gonna need care. And what a lot of Americans aren't aware of is that Medicare and most health insurance plans don't cover long-term care. And most people want to age at home and get care at home. And so what that means is that we rely primarily on family caregivers. And it's an astonishing number of them. Approximately 40 million family caregivers are providing a significant amount of care with an estimated value of about $500 billion a year and similarly an estimated cost to them and lost income of $500 billion a year.
33: Right. So if you don't have a broken hip, you're living along, but you can't live alone. Medicare is not going to pay for that in these United States.
2: That's correct. And the other way this shakes out that really was kind of a revelation to me as I learned more about it was that if you have cancer and you're getting chemo or if you fall and have a broken hip, Medicare will cover a lot of the care for those conditions. If you have Alzheimer's or some other kind of dementia and you need more custodial care or more help around the house to make sure you're not leaving the gas on or something like that. Medicare doesn't cover that. And so families are really pretty much on their own for cognitive incapacity kinds of care.
33: By the way, of that 40 million people who are in this shadow care industry, if you wanna call it that, this isn't looking in on dad or mom on a Sunday. The definition of someone who's a caregiver in that 40 million statistic is someone who's really investing a lot of time.
2: About 24 hours a week, yes. It's, it's really significant. And I think one other thing about caregiving is that it ends up being too much of a solo activity when really it should be a team sport.
33: Yeah, I mean, it really does have to get thought out. I was talking to a physician not too long ago and they always talk about there's often a kid who's doing most of the caregiving and the other kid who lives three time zones away is the one with the biggest, deepest, sharpest opinions about mom or dad's care.
2: One of the things that's critical is for us to think about and prepare for aging much sooner than we do and then to have those conversations as families and in our relationships to say okay what's expected of whom and what's fair in terms of the allocation.
33: difficult but important conversations Mt. Connelly's book the measure of our age navigating care safety money and meaning later in life
2: thank you very much thanks for having me David
33: and in New York I'm David Brancaccio it's the marketplace morning report APM American Public Media.
0: Near 90 and sunny today. It only dips to the low 70s tonight and some clouds will move in. Tomorrow a heat advisory goes into effect for most of the area. It'll be in the mid 90s with a chance of afternoon showers and maybe a thunderstorm. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston and the BBC is coming up next.